Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. The Repeater Book of the Occult. An interview with Tarek Goddard and Claire Cronin. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Horror Vanguard. Uh, my name is John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, joined as always by my co ghost, Ash. Ash, how are you doing? I am doing absolutely fantastic and dare I say occult on this fine Nebraskan morning. God, How about yourself? We're, we're good at segues on this show. Um, <laughs> we, we, are, we are both very excited. We have a couple of guests joining us in the HV Crypt. Uh, we have Claire Cronin has returned as well. Uh, has uh, And joining us for the first time is Tariq Goddard. Hello, both of you. Hello. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Uh, you are most welcome. So we've got you on today to talk about the brand new book from Repeater, the Repeater Book of the Occult, Tales from the Dark Side, which I just got to say right off the bat, like I have I have a review copy in my hand and I absolutely love the kind of design and layout of this. It really has the feel of a proper occult tome. Thank you. Uh, we should probably start then by, uh, Tarek, maybe you can talk a little bit about what is what what is this book? Why why have why has Repeater brought this dark tome into existence? Um thank you. Um third time I've said thank you. I better get on with the business end of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's there, I'd say very crudely, John, there were three sources of this, one of which goes back to Manchester where you are about 15, 12 years ago. I'd written my first and at that point only horror novel, having come from a background in literary fiction and not in genre horror. And I did the Manchester Literary Festival where I was put with a group of horror writers, not all of whom I sensed were that pleased to be sharing table space with me. <laughs> it became apparent in the audience discussion that I was perhaps the only one that was prepared to either be stupid or pretentious enough to own up to a, uh, own up to a belief in the supernatural, to say that, you know, I'm not writing in metaphor or code or symbol. This isn't a parable. I actually believe, if not in the reality of the beings that I'm writing about, then in some force equivalent to them that has some actual embodied reality. And it seemed to me that most of the other writers, if not tongue-in-cheek, or at least approaching things from a slightly humorous and knowing and ironic angle, certainly weren't doing what I was doing. And that got me thinking about the horror that I really love. And what is common to it all is, as you know, Eugene and I say in the introduction, that it takes itself seriously, it takes fear seriously, and it takes the source of what is frightening it seriously. It's neither reductionist nor um, dismissive of, of what it is that scares the shit out of us. So over the years, I've had some conversations with Eugene about this. And although he's coming from a very different philosophical and, if you like, theological trajectory to me, in that he's, I hope he won't mind me saying this, as it's a fool that speaks for Eugene Jacker. But <laughs> he, he is a kind of nihilist. Whereas I'm more of um, a pantheistic mystic. <laughs> uh, it seemed that we both had certain reservations about how horror writing was being done in the main. Neither of us were very fond about the intellectualization of horror, which we felt re reduced its supernatural content and its explanatory power of life. And we also wanted to put together something that we would enjoy reading, you know, the real bottom line base basic reason for doing anything. So th 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 those three things came together um, for the repeated book of the occult. And then we set about uh, finding authors who we felt would be sympathetico to those, those rather vague mission aims. And maybe that would be a good point for you to jump in, Claire, and, and talk a little bit about 
your involvement, what you have, what you have uh, put into the, the into the book, and maybe a little bit about why. Sure. Um, well, I wrote about Sheridan Le Fanu's story, Green Tea, which is something I've been thinking about. Um, I don't know for at least a year before I was asked to contribute something, uh, and had like I mentioned it in my book, Blue Light of the Screen, and I had read some critical theory about it, um, but also just really loved it as a ghost story. And I found that my own reaction to that story was, um, I mean, there are funny elements, like he's he's being haunted or possessed by a demonic monkey, <laughs> for example. <laughs> um, and there's some some satire in the metaphysical doctor, but I, I was, shaken by the story in a genuine way um and i took i took its kind of theological and occult stakes um seriously perhaps because at the time i first read it or read it deeply i was still in grad school and spending a lot of times time in the library reading old um occult texts just like the protagonist is reading swedenborg swedenborg um and that, of course, drives him to ruin in the story. <laughs> um, and I've been thinking a lot about scholarship and the idea of the academic, um, or at least an old-fashioned idea, as being very close to the idea of the occultist. Um, so I wanted to explore that, but also explore uh, that Leif Fanu is an interesting writer to me, I think, because... He was a believer. Um, he came from a religious family and then, you know, had his own sort of mix of beliefs that were much more occult than Christian. Um, and I think it comes through in his writing. Like he seems genuinely terrified about some of the things that he writes about. Because mm. you you both you both chose a Sheridan Lafanu and then um Tarek, I was wondering. You know that you know we can, oh it's just a coincidence isn't it it's just we could easily just get it's just a coincidence but the, uh, well there, there may have been some symbiosis I um I worked I edited Claire's book the blue light of the screen and one of the things I found very interesting in it was the connection between horror and God and that if the subjects of horror really exist if the supernatural is actually a dimension to be taken seriously then that has a lot to say about the existence of, of God and of transcendence and of all sorts of things that rub against the materialist grain. And as she says, Fanu is a perfect example of um, this kind of tendency in horror writing because he is so wildly batshit crazy and over the top. Unashamedly <laughs> <laughs> foaming at the mouth in your face. I mean... It's a, um, it's a very rough parallel to make, but if someone like M.R. James is refinement and Fano is a sort of hundred nightmare on Elm Street compressed together, <laughs> he just gives you everything. There's a wonderful bit in Claire's story, not Claire, the story Claire chose, the green tea, where he says something like, and I cannot tell you what I saw. And then absolutely unashamedly tells you exactly what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> all over the place. Absolutely disgusting. <laughs> no way to look. I mean, you know, and, th and this total crass disregard for the laws of the creative writing school. <laughs> no, never tell. He will tell you it all. And when he's sick of telling, he'll show you it all. <laughs> and, I mean, that, that kind of wild over-the-top unhingedness was a really good way of putting our cards on the table and not only giving examples of the kind of horror we write, but the kind of horror that I think is very successful. Because although Fanu um, is absolutely overt about, I think, being taken literally, he does expect you to read the surfaces and accept the surfaces of where the answers are. He is also capable of subtlety. Um, and he is also very conscious of materialism being the killjoy in the room that could not only kill the effectiveness of his stories, but undermine the belief system necessary for them to work with the reader and for, 
undermine the belief system that helps make them plausible as well. So he addresses materialism in his, his books um, extremely you know, critically. Um, in Carmilla, his, uh, his vampire story, the vampire actually pretends there's materialist reasons for people having the blood sucked out of them. It's just a weird natural process. Um, in Squire, um, in the story I, I, I chose, um, Squire Toby's Will, um, you know, the servant claims that all these demonic happenings have been because of indigested food. And <laughs> there's, you know, this, this monkey, this monkey's come up because the guy's overdosed on green tea. <laughs> Despite the fact that he's read a book on metaphysical medicine, you know, that should have alerted him to this. And he's very conscious of the enemy within, the kind of um, clever emboldening tendency that will say horror shouldn't be taken seriously. It should just be enjoyed. But if that were the case, then horror wouldn't work for, for Fanu or us, I think. Yeah. But we didn't say that everyone had to choose a Fanu story. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit else in the mix, but I agree with only about a dozen stories. You thought we could have cast the net a bit further than we did. Yeah, I definitely, I think it's really appropriate that there winds up being two Fanu stories in this text. I think you're, you're really nailing it here. One, one of the things that I thought was really compelling about this edited uh, edition is in the introduction uh, where you write, there is only a world revealed in its own hiddenness, a world made clearer in its opacity a revelation of something radically other that is also simply the fragile, tenuous mind registering its own limits. And I was wondering if you could like comment on how that intersects with what we're kind of talking about here, the fact that horror is simultaneously used for these uh, material political allegories and also earnest explorations of, you know, the supernatural, the extra physical. Sure. Um, I think there's got to be something horrifying about the world to have inspired horror writing. I don't think there's any way around that, that the horror is already here, that there are very practical and banal things that occur that are more terrifying in human life than the best, most effectively crafted horror story or film could ever be. Mm -hmm. There's that relationship. But with that, I would argue that there are commonplace daily things that occur that really are unfathomable. And I think, and I, you know, Eugene too, that there are as many things about our life that govern it that we don't understand as there are that do, I think. And that, that kind of invisible realm is, that, is, is around us all the time. And it has great explanatory potential, the supernatural, mm -hmm. I think, to make sense of things that are otherwise really genuinely inexplicable. But at the same time, I do think that, you know, human beings in a very mundane way are capable of greater horror than anything that the supernatural, you know, the, the supernatural could, could, could drum up. Um, so I think both those things exist. But the, the supernatural has great explanatory power for a lot of the things humans do do that are evil, but are also unfathomable, mm -hmm. unexplainable, really, unless we start to take in things like absolute evil or possession or whatnot. Mm -hmm. I think it's all up a bit, basically. I wonder how that differs with other genres like science fiction or fantasy or just some like very uh, dreary drama about a tragedy. Like thinking about this idea that there's a quote in the intro about um, the occult and horror as a as based on a doubt regarding the world as it is given to us, a doubt regarding the accepted ways of explaining that world to us, a suspicion. Um, so it's like there's a, I mean, it's horror, so I guess there's obviously a negative cast to it. Like there's a suspicion because it ends up being a terrible thing <laughs> that's hidden <laughs> at the cause. As opposed to, you know, maybe in a fantasy, it's like the magicians are successful and they're living a happy life. I think that's really interesting, Claire, because it does allow for the possibility of a supernatural story that isn't horrific or horrible or terrifying. And I think there's one by Wakefield, and it's perhaps one of the most moving short stories I've ever read that David Tibet recently put in a collection. And it's basically an animal rights story 
were a bloke that, you know, just loves shooting things. Eventually, <laughs> he goes, I mean, shooting animals, you know, not <laughs> in the English countryside, you know, well, well, well mannered, you know, legalized death. And, <laughs> These the ghosts of these sort of pheasants and pigeons and a, and a hare he shot, you know, begin to haunt him. And he turns into an anti-vivisectionist. He writes letters to the Times. And as he's dying, they all just gently come into bed with him to keep him company in a reassuring way. And he sort of smiles and strokes their fur. Now, it sounds grotesque, I warrant you. But it's, in fact, a very moving story about the supernatural as a force for good. And you know, con concrete decency. That that almost strikes me as the inverse of Squire Toby's will, where wherein a man is haunted but listens to absolutely zero of the demons and ghosts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's more than one way to go, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> there is many. I, I, for one, would listen to the ghost pheasants. Yeah. <laughs> as many response to demons as there are anything else that happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, th th those careful ones amongst us. I mean, that's Fanu as well. He thinks people who have an underdeveloped sense of superstition are fools. You know, that the instinctive totally. life is one that we should be paying attention to. And I think that that ties in exactly to what we try and do on, on this show, which is to kind of talk about a materialism that isn't reductionist. Yeah. Uh, kind of, or mm -hmm. or, or uh, to, to kind of borrow a, a phrase from, from China Mievel is, is insufficiently Marxist, you know, is, is kind of bought into rationalist conceptions of, of uh, you know, phys physicality is the only, as the only kind of reliable substance. There's mm. a, there's a, there's an old quote from, from Zizek, this, this show is problematic fave, uh, Slavo <laughs> Zizek, who, who was giving a talk at a conference and, and sort of described how for the majority, uh, reality is kind of like, is like an unfinished computer game. So there are objects which are kind of given to us, but they're these flat phenomenological representations. They don't really have anything behind them. And I think that chimes with what you're saying from Fanu, this idea that like, if you don't uh, develop your perceptual ability your, ability, your ability to actually look at the world, you miss a lot of this quote unquote, non-material depth to existence. Mm. Uh, yeah. I, I... Claire, do you want to come back on that? I mean, I, I'm not a, an expert in Marxism, but I it has always seemed to me to be a very occult philosophy in that it's talking, <laughs> it's talking about forces which are um, often hidden or made invisible, mm -hmm. um, controlling reality mm -hmm. and history. <laughs> One, so I 100%. Think, yeah, it's, it, may, it may not be supernatural, but it has a, a similar feeling. I, I totally agree with that. And I think that's that's kind of why the, the Gothic and the horrific have always been such ready homes for Marx, Marxism and even Marx's own writings. He's invoking vampires and these kind of, you know, grotesque monstrosities to explain yeah. conditions under capital. Um, but, to, but to go back to what um, you both were saying about like a, a horror and it's kind of like inherent darkness and negativity. I was, it got, it got me thinking about, I think it was um, Breton who, who remarked that there's always three people in any photograph. There's the photographer, the subject, and the viewer. And like, mm -hmm. and, and that's true for horror cinema as well. Like we as viewers are part of it. And like the, the viewing experience of horror, I feel is like always like frightfully under discussed, you know, how, like how often are we afraid when we're watching a horror movie alone versus how often when we're with friends, are we shouting at the characters like, you fool, don't don't go into that room. Like you clearly shouldn't have split up. And there's there's this positive kind of celebratory element when you change the viewing conditions of a horror experience. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, that's kind of like ganging up on horror though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. people in the room with me, yeah? So, I mean, there's horror that you can do that to, I think. And mm. horror that resists resists that kind of treatment. It's much I'm, harder to do that with the Exorcist, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you went there. I was about to. I'll go there too. I I saw the Exorcist um, in Leicester Square, and in, it, it was a Friday night, massive cinema. It was the only place that it was being shown in 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 the United Kingdom at that stage. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't on TV. It wasn't on videos. You know, we're drawn. The place was absolutely rammed. 
and we were all terrified. It made absolutely no difference to me at all. <laughs> there were several hundred people in there because I knew at some point in the rest of my life, I would be on my own and I would think of Regan and the Exorcist. And that would be yeah. it, you know? Mm -hmm. It didn't matter that at that point of reception, um, I, I, I felt bolstered by, you know, the, the company of my fellows. I knew that at some point, the lonely moment of the last instance, I would be in bed on my own and all hell would break loose, which it did do for several years, you know. <laughs> I, I, I take your point, but I think that works on a horror that relies very much, I think, on the stage effects rather than terrible, meaningful content. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And I think uh, the, the Exorcist, when it came out, was definitely a, a rupture of the new. That was that was extreme and horrific I existing in a new space compared with uh, the inevitable Halloween franchise reboot, reboot, reboot that we're going to get in the next five years, which will no doubtedly be riddled with cliches and deeply unscary. Right. The reboot of the reboots is like the lockdown on the lockdown, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're entering phase six of the yeah. Halloween franchise. It's <laughs> down even more, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it goes past um, fast and tragedy into some new subgenre that, you know, the, the ancients just didn't have the equipment to foreseal. <laughs> I mean, I think the point that was made too about how Marxism um is um naturally in its element with horror in a way that the kind of i suppose radical atheism dawkins liberalism mm. isn't is very apt because marxism isn't isn't making epistemological claims on what the nature of reality fixed is in the way mm. that, you know dennett and, and dawkins and others hitchens, hitchens did do um, and I think, you know, that, that, that Marxism has a sort of great, greater capacity to understand um, evil and terrible events than ordinary legalistic bourgeois liberal philosophy or politics can. It, it, it's more at home in that world, definitely. Um, but also, you know, such a, to say that horror is a source of information is to say something that we, something that we don't understand or know everything about will shed light on other things that we don't really understand or know everything about, but can see and only see incompletely. See, mm -hmm. horror has a hell of a lot of legwork to do if it wants the same status as mental arithmetic, you know. But that, that, that isn't to say that it shouldn't be given its due, you know, which goes back to the, the mission statement and founding aims of this book, collection. I think that's why it's so frustrating to me when in kind of popular or mainstream film reviews, um, the movies that are celebrated by critics who I think are not normally horror fans are those that are extremely legible in their mm -hmm. moral messages or their sort of wokeness. Um, and people get excited about that when really like the film is not scary. Like there are, <laughs> you know, there are no <laughs> layers to it. Um, people just want to say like, you know, this is a message about this specific historical human evil. And that's all that the supernatural is doing is dramatizing that for us. Yeah. The reductionism of kind of, there's a kind of epistemological violence in that of going, uh, here's a one-to-one -one analogy of like this 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 creative piece is actually about this one exact this is a one-to-one -one representation you know you've boiled everything down into this uh kind of neat discursive package there's a, great, there's a great quote from um from andy sharp in his book on the uh, on english heretic oh yeah uh, where he says you know we didn't get into horror movies because you know we wanted to talk about discourse we got into horror movies because horror movies are cool <laughs> yes. yeah i mean a andy comes from the england that i came out of where you know there's three channels they all are too early they all show the same thing <laughs> in the midst of this you would have these completely fucking freaky plays put on all the old hammer movies and mm -hmm. yeah um, yeah i mean that that was definitely the way in rather than looking for didactic answers so i think and I think you're right, Claire, that like we we've talked on this show before about like 
uh, our, our genuine loathing of, of prestige horror or the even worse yes. art, <laughs> art horror, this idea mm-hmm. that suddenly horror <laughs> has become uh, acceptable. And it's right. like, no, there is, there is just as much in uh, Die You Zombie Bastards or mm-hmm. in, in, you know, the, the occult uh, hidden texts of the 19th century some of which in this collection uh, have not been widely published at all, some of which are, are probably very well known to people, as there is in, in the latest A24 production. Nothing Definitely. against, nothing against A24. But... The universities and criticism encourages this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the idea that we're basically involved in some detective work. We'll get to the bottom of this, and once we have the answer to the riddle, we'll move on and do it all over again. And art is at the surface of this sort of pointless looking for what we already know we're going to find at the endless that yep. you in this. And it's encouraged in universities. Mm-hmm. It's, it's encouraged in critical analysis. And it becomes a self-aggrandizing badge of cleverness um, that understands absolutely nothing about creative work or how, as Andy would have it, cool things are produced. <laughs> it will never make anyone laugh. It will never make anyone shit their pants. You know, you know what it is. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it, it's there every week. Yeah, absolutely. Horror wants to do things to your body. It, it is, as much as it is occult and extra physical, it is, it is you know, the, uh, I think it was on a recent episode of Against Everyone with Connor Habib. He he uh, commented that the the physical is the written address for the extra physical, <laughs> and I think that, that 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 is a great way to approach horror, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's operating on these occultic and supernatural planes, but it is it is deeply rooted in in the cold sweat and the jump scare and and all of these things that are creeping into your bones. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, these are very neutral. I mean, not neutral. These are very useful defense mechanisms, nature mm-hmm. gave to find our way around life, you know, yep. to save our lives and the lives of people we love as well. You know, and, and horror to some extent is playing games with those raw nerve endings, but it's also looking to tell them something. Um, and I mean, I, you know, in, in ghost stories, there's the obvious way in which the ghost is coming to tell you something like <laughs> revenge on you for having swindled it out of millions of pounds, which is why, you know, this person <laughs> is now at the foot of your bed pulling faces. But also subtler things, you know, about the nature of reality and the um, provisional contingency of knowledge. Yeah, the very yeah, hauntedness that... of knowledge, the very hauntedness mm-hmm. of knowledge, uh, which is, as you know, as someone who's, technically a researcher uh claire that's why i really i really loved your introduction to green tea because (laughs) there is this there is this idea that actually there is a kind of quantification in the the kind of capitalist university of how knowledge works like like you said Tarek, when we when we've solved it we close the 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 kind of interpretive box and we move on and we leave that that text on the shelf but texts always have this power to kind of speak uh in a way that can never be finally closed off and finally, you know, settled. Some of these, some of these stories are hundred, nearly two hundred years old, and mm-hmm. uh, have this incredible potential now to kind of, like, uh, Squire Toby's will. You go, London is still is still the most one of the most litigious cities in the entire world. <laughs> but, you know, this this fight is still happening because it expresses a kind of. Uh, a, 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 a fact about human nature as it's developed historically that is still kind of prevalent and with us, right? Yeah, it's amazing how many of these stories are always set in the English countryside or in squalid suburbs of, of London. Um, I mean, there must be something about the English dusk that <laughs> inspires this kind of feedback. Um, I don't, I mean, I did you read Carl Neville's um, choice, Jacob's um, The Monkey's Paw? Oh, I loved um, his introduction. That introduction, um, I, yeah, me too. I mean, Carl, Carl's reading of this thing is totally in keeping with the spirit, the, the brave spirit of appearing absolutely ridiculous but arguing with a straight face. Um, because in, in this book, basically, the um, sorry, in this story, the, the father 
is the one that saves the family. Otherwise, the mum will open the door to their son, who is now dead, and so will have come back as a zombie. Um, and Carla's arguing, actually, the mother is fine-tuned to a kind of braveness and openness to experience, is closer tuned to love and openness to other people, and is simply just braver um, than, than the father. And the father is dying, would love to make this kind of connection, and is too scared to which is why he wastes a wish on the monkey's paw and asks for this creature to go away. And it, it was those kind of readings, you know, that we were encouraging. And I think Carl, Carl did an absolutely brilliant one there. I mean, every, everyone does, but Carl's was particularly crazy, as most of us would have doubts about opening the front door to a zombie, you know. But, and that's like a, that's a horror story that I always thought was sort of a paradigmatic example of a warning against occultism. Like the fact that they're using magic at all. Yeah, some fool's mess. If someone gives you a monkey's paw, you chuck it into the fire. Right, do That's not make a wish. <laughs> Look at it malevolently for a few days and then start wishing for crazy shit. No, that was, the, the received reading would definitely have gone that way, but Carl, Carl was in the mood to turn things on their head. Yeah. Uh, maybe worth maybe worth quoting just a couple of sentences then from because I agree I think it's a really really great uh, introduction for the father the boy has become a thing again pure materiality and drive without a recognizable face something to be feared but for the mother with her deeper and more primal bodily attachments any form the child takes can elicit love be nursed fed and consoled nor can anything truly break that bond beautiful which is a genuinely beautiful thing. And I think it kind of brings up a point I was sort of hoping you'd both talk about, which is something that we've talked about on this show and something I know that both me and Ash have, have kind of written about is that horror has a sort of ethical dimension to it. Mm. Um, not, not, not necessarily a didactic one, um, but especially about the relationship between the dead and the living. That there is, there, there is a sort of, uh, there are connections there that can't be broken. No matter how uh, how much we might, might want to try, the, the dead always return. The ghost always haunts. The, the the zombie always emerges, punching its fist through through the grave. Um, and I was wondering what you thought about, given the text that you both chose, what you thought about this idea of like horror has a kind of ethical or moral uh, capacity that maybe other forms are not quite as attuned to, or maybe don't quite push as far. I mean, in green tea. It, it sometimes it reads like a cautionary tale as well because he must have done something wrong. Presumably it was studying um, occultism mm -hmm. as a Christian minister <laughs> to <laughs> become possessed and um, eventually die because of it. Uh, but also there's, so there's a sort of morality in that, but also I feel like the end, there are just so many to give away the ending, there are just so many suicides in Life and News Stories. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's room to sort of read the ending as a tragedy that wasn't really the protagonist's fault. Um, and so there's sort of an unexplained evil force that's attacking him, or maybe it's hereditary because we learn that his father um, also committed suicide and, and was said to have seen ghosts. Um, so there's morality that's implied, but I think the story goes beyond that, which is what interesting horror does into, into saying, it's not just like, you shouldn't have been reading Swedenborg instead of preaching <laughs> to your congregation. It's like, this man was basically innocent. Like what he was doing wasn't really that bad. He was drinking some green tea. He was reading his fancy occult books. Like he didn't deserve to be possessed by the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a glorious sentence to get to listen to <laughs> people that have done a lot worse and got off a lot lightly so definitely <laughs> yeah i mean i think there's two ways in which horror is is moral in the way that you suggested is one of them is simply that when the when when morality on earth is not moral enough horror kicks in and takes over supernatural absolute ultimate the world of ends comes in and intervenes you know in, in in our in our sort of phenomena or shadow play of human life 
um, if we are not being moral enough, if we failed morality, then, you know, horror is almost kind of like the custodian, the last guardian, the mm-hmm. one intervene on its behalf. I also think that in really um, successful horror, I mean, what did Reagan do in The Exorcist to deserve all that, you know? Yeah. I mean, all <laughs> cats and howdy. Talk about the uh, cause having no proportion, you know, to the crime or to the punishment, you know, that comes. But I, I think there's certain frames of mind, Horace says, that if we move into certain levels of awareness, that we've become more susceptible to occult and supernatural knowledge. And in doing so, we place ourselves in mortal danger. And it isn't that we've necessarily been very naughty. It's we've been rather careless about dimensions. And I think quite often the bits of horror we see, the severed head, you know, the the shadow in the bushes or whatever, is just the tip of the iceberg or is supposed to be the tip of the iceberg. And behind it lies something we can barely understand. Um, So that when, when, when we act evilly or when we think about the nature of evil, we become more aware of evil more informed by evil and tap in to a sort of irreducibility of evil that exists in the world and takes possession of human subjects. So mm. there's, there's a kind of warning in horror, which is, you know, be dim, especially in Fanu as well. You know, you know keep your head down. Don't, don't ask too many questions of dangerous things. Simply turn the light out and don't think about it and you might be all right. But yeah. I'm there and brood and ponder and try and join the dots and you are going to put a big target on your back, you know? And yet he's, I totally agree with that. Um, And yet he is kind of making fun of these materialist positions and characters. Yeah, absolutely. And cruelly. Um, And, you know, materialists in his books don't end up well, you know, bad things happen to them and it's always too late for them to recant. You know, whereas in James or, you know, maybe even um, with, with the, you know, in a lot of in a lot of horror, the materialist or the rationalist is set up as a stooge who is then confronted by something terrible and learns a bit of caution and respect. Um, but Fanny doesn't give his characters the chance. Yeah. I think that this is. This is incredibly compelling, especially for how we critique horror as as horror critics, right? Because the received uh, understandings of like your monkey's paws and your green teas, they're they're all, as you were saying, the occult is bad and dangerous and you shouldn't mess with that. And the implication being, of course, like, don't go where the other is. Don't don't go over there to learn those strange things. Stay here where it's safe and normal. Mm-hmm. But like these these stories are scary and weird. You know, like like if you give if you give proper credence to a world where there is a an enchanted severed monkey's paw that can grant wishes that have a Faustian twist, that that opens a door to to this kind of like rippling imperceptibility of reality, and I, I think that for the position of the horror critic, we must likewise be scary and weird. Mm. You know, we must do criticism by way of wishing on the monkey's paw. We need to open these doors. You know, it's not it's not for us to kind of shrink away from the weird, terrific bits of these stories. We have to just kind of become them. Yeah, I like that. And what would we want to, you know, sh- shy away from them? I mean, it, it's you get so much more from them by taking them on their own terms. I think. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, completely. You you are. And I think right? that that's that's you know, as you say in Fanu, it isn't just. It isn't a simple didacticism of don't go near the forbidden thing because it's dangerous. It's like, it's more like, even though I've told you it's dangerous, <laughs> there is something in you which is going to be drawn to this because it reveals the very contingency of your quote unquote normal existence. And so right. to the point you made earlier, that's where I think horror does actually work as a sort of symbol, but less as a symbol as a mirror of saying, you know, this normal world that you inhabit, that you think is so clean or moral or good or expressive or decent or an in- inherently just, it's none of those things. Mm-hmm. Or is the device that casts it in its true hue and character sometimes. 
And it's quite mm-hmm. a lot of the characters in in the horror stories that our collection, you know, the 19th century, early 20th, they're often making most sense when they are terrified and have been approached by some supernatural force or intensity. Suddenly, mm-hmm. they're speaking like us moderns, you know, even if they're jabbing mm-hmm. or blabbering. Whereas before that, they've been fussy, hemmed in, precise, twee, lazy, unthought through, total exemplars of the unreflective life, you know, prisoners of convention. But when horror comes in, it blows the top of their heads off. And they start to become interesting and vivid characters as well. <laughs> you know, horror has shown them something that their ordinary lives weren't capable of doing. I I completely agree. And there's um, there's that quote from uh, Adorno where Adorno says that if you could write an anthology that fits all the facts of mo- of the modern world, that that ontology would be pure horror. Yeah. Because you know it's it's this idea of your your kind of accepted normality is not only not only not really all that normal in the first place, but is so incredibly fragile. You know, the skin that separates kind of uh, mimetic artistic realism from horror is easily permeable if you just poke at it in the right places. I think that's so true. I mean, everyone's house is built on bones and there's nothing mm-hmm. in your mind that won't kill you if you approach it the right way and long enough. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's a tenuous thing we have here, speaking as we are, you know. Um, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And <laughs> <laughs> to break, break the silence. This isn't, you know. I'm, because I'm just talking to the blocks, or to, oh, yeah. you know, I, I don't, I don't have any face to work off. So it's, I'm waiting for the void to to return. I, I was, I was gonna say that's a, that's kind of a, a almost a metatextually surreal and horrific moment, right? Are you even talking to humans anymore? Have we all been supplanted by some kind of AI? It's a lot better than the studio the BBC sends me to in Southampton, where I'm just in this sort of mustard-coloured box with an old microphone stuck in place and I've <laughs> whether the main studio is there or not but such is the price you pay if you don't live in a metropolitan hub I won't give you my problem <laughs> <laughs> no I think I think like this is this is all, all of what we've been talking about right like the arc of this conversation for me is what makes horror just so viscerally compelling Right there, there's something in the the very essence of trying to scare someone, whether whether you're trying to do that as as a, a high minded artistic exercise of some sort, or or you are as I have been in in a haunted house with a pumpkin mask on chasing teenagers around. Right <laughs> there's there, there's something like almost cosmic that you connect into when you attempt to bring this kind of like almost instructive fear into people's lives. Yeah. And I think that we're, we, we're all approaching this from so many different angles because it just has so many vectors that we can hook onto. I mean, I've, I'm trying to think about the occult more broadly or specifically the occult as it exists, um, you know, in 2021 in as much as I mm-hmm. know of it, which is, of course, not all. But um, there's, you know, in this sort of like more new age world, which is still, of course, occultism, I feel like there's a very obnoxious optimism and kind of a belief that, you know, you can think your way uh, out of any kind of problem, personal or social or political through positive thinking or meditating on a crystal or whatever, Um, which is kind of the opposite of the occult message when it has a a horror um, coloring to it. So it's like the, you know, an idea that the world is full of miracles and is um, ready to <laughs> serve you versus that there's an invisible reality, but it's very dangerous. And <laughs> we are constantly, you know, embedded in it and that there are, there are, you know, the dead and also non-human entities and chaotic forces that we don't understand. Oh my God. Yes. Um, I, I think th- these are things that I really like thinking about because the 
the current state of like i guess for lack of a better phrasing like this new age popular occultism that's that's come about has this kind of like saccharine neoliberal smarminess yeah. to it mm. where they're like oh oh okay don't 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 go messing with the black magic and these accursed things you're supposed to just do things for good and and just be clear about your actions when you're actually only doing things for good because that's supposed to bring more good to you. So you're actually doing something that's entirely self-serving, yeah. defeating your initial precepts here. And it's just like, there's, there's no, uh, back to what you were talking about earlier. Uh, uh, there's no, there's, there's no connection to like this greater self-awareness of, of the actions that are being taken. It's very reassuring because it's been yeah. one of the great childhood and, you know, Youth and being a child and horror are, are entwined. They really are. Mm -hmm. um, our capacity to be scared is formed when we're younger. And it, you know, but the, the, the point about this is that when we're children, we are told this great, this great all embracing illusion, which is that if you follow the rules, you'll be okay. Um, you know, there, there's certain ways of behaving, there's certain, you know, there's certain restrictions there's certain inhibitions but basically if you play by the rules you'll be all right and that isn't true there are people who play by the rules and are completely destroyed mm -hmm. and you know that that kind of new new age all embracing this um would like to tell you that there is some guy some kind of code to behavior certain, certain karmic existence that will guarantee your personal equanimity and safety and horror is obviously challenging that. I mean, I wouldn't be, I do think there's a redemptive aspect to horror. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't paint oh, yeah. black too blackly. I do think, of course, life is necessarily terrible, but it's beautiful as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I know, and I don't think that the forces of darkness have the last word. In fact, yeah. <laughs> to say that horror ontologically is necessarily and always dark would be a misrepresentation. I, mine is, I think it's sometimes like that, and we definitely need to flag it up as a corrective to all this we are the world nonsense, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that that is so important, right? Like horror, horror in a way is, is natural, right? Like natural in, in the purest sense of the term, right? Not this wishy-washy, uh, nature is good thing, but but nature for for as often as nature is a lovely field of flowers, nature is a volcano destroying a civilization or a bear chasing some campers. Right, nature is as horrific as it is beautiful, and and horror in the occult exist in that same kind of phase state where you can have experiences that are edifying and beautiful and enrich the soul. And you can have experiences that just absolutely shred you and, and leave you with, with these new weights to carry. Mm. Fear can be healthy, you know, if, mm, yeah. if it's employed at the service of learning. Um, if it's fear, if it's employed at the surface of courage, can be very healthy. It's only when mm -hmm. it overwhelms you that it, you know, that it affects you badly in life. Although, of course, fear in small doses when being manipulated by a great work of horror is always enjoyable you know, providing you think everything's going to be okay in a few minutes. <laughs> yes, John, are you back? Am I back? Is anyone there? Yes, yes. <laughs> we, you've returned from the ethereal void uh, to bring us your knowledge. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's what happens when you talk about Eugene Thacker. Um, <laughs> appropriate enough um, i think i i think uh uh claire your your comment would be a good a good way to get us back into the conversation kind of bring us towards closing the interview um you you had mentioned that um and this is something that i really enjoyed as well because um i the last time i had read squire toby's will i was like 15 and I, I had remembered it as a story about a monster demon dog uh, terrorizing this kind of snooty, rich British guy. <laughs> so I had I had rewritten the story entirely in my head to be more of like a B-horror movie. <laughs> I mean, the, the dog is meant to be really pathetic and pitiful. Yeah. Um, it's tragic, deeply. But uh, yeah, also funny that part about describing him rolling around in like grotesque ecstasy, mm -hmm. like, uh, like 
Cat is high on something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, Fano obviously saw horror and the horrific in ordinary nature and in natural life. So, I mean, I think he was literally haunted and hemmed in by it all the time. Oh, it really picks up towards the end, the, the like supernatural horrific elements with the actual haunt. I mean, after the dog, of course, but then the actual haunting of the mysterious mourners that come in. Mm. Yeah, it did make me wish there was um, a movie adaptation or several that focused on different elements. <laughs> I mean, because you've got the demon dog and the, the metamorphosis, and the sort of weird incesty bits and all the rest of it, you can take your eye off the most terrifying thing being in it, just two mourners from a funeral entering a house. And it's because of their entry into this building that all hell breaks loose, even though it's put down as perhaps the most incongruous element in the whole mm -hmm. story. And as a sort of afterthought, just sort of seen in the periphery of, of the narrator's vision. Um, but that, 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 that's, the, the part that really holds the key to the entire thing. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think um, part of that ending too, right? Like our protagonist, I guess, uh, he, he has this kind of deathbed repentance that he tries to do. And he tries to pivot into being somewhat of, of a better person towards the end. But like we were talking about earlier with the kind of like uh, contemporary new age scene, it's just entirely self-serving. There's no, there's no depth to his interest outside of getting him out of this like particular occultic jam. Yeah, it's difficult when, I mean, when you're writing, just from a novelist or writer's perspective, to do the best thing for the story or to do the best thing for the point you're trying to make. Mm, yeah. I think, you know, Fanu sometimes struggled a little bit with that. Um, because obviously for his books to work really well, there's that, there, there is no moral to take away from them. They're self-contained. You know, the full stop ends everything. And I suppose that's why people consider him one of the more pessimistic of the Victorian ghost story writers. Mm. That there's not a there's not a sort of hopeful opportunity opportunity at the end, as in M. R. James. Mm -hmm. uh, no, but no, the, no, the, this particular tunnel. Yeah, but the inverse is 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 also true. I mean, one of one of the big problems historically with James is that there's always the res the restoration. You know, you close the book because there's something terrifying in it, and the book goes back on the library shelf where it'll sit there forever. Um, whereas whereas here, yeah, yeah, it's a little more pessimistic. You know, there isn't the kind of uh, redemptive possibility, which I absolutely think is 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 in 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 horror generally. But mm -hmm. there's also there's also um there isn't the same stasis as there is at the end of a of an mr james story no. um you know there's the possibility of you know uh the 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 occult being made materially present in the everyday right you close yeah. the book you close the book but like all of that weird shit is still all around you mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of like I, I think about this as mr james was offering potential for redemption for his characters Whereas Sheridan Le Fanu is offering redemption for us, the reader, yeah. at the expense of his protagonists. Yeah, they're all expendable compared to what we might leave the book or the story with. That's certainly yeah. It's also because Fanu understands at a very visceral and physical level, finality, the moment when you realize it's too late, that there's a bad outcome mm -hmm. in life and there's nothing you can do about it now. It's mm. yours to own. It's happened, you know. And that, that finality, the moment you realize the car is going out of control and you're not going to be able to put the brake on. It's already gone and it feels like this. He, he, he really gets into that as a sort of mm -hmm. physical but also spiritual fact that fi finality is where life is heading. You know, time is inevitability. Horror is inevitability. Mm -hmm. um, and I completely agree with you. You can only get something from that reading it. Within, within his world, there's no way out. And then as readers, you're left, you know, the, the, the kind of, I really like this idea of like having an attuned sensitivity to the incongruous detail because that's where horror emerges, you know. It's a very small detail, you know. It's two people at the funeral. 
Mm. As you said, caught out of the corner of your eye. But if you follow that thread, it leads you into a kind of new existential condition, right? Mm. And it, it, it disrupts the linearity of time, right? You know, you think finality, well, that's the end. But sometimes the end arrives before it arrives, you know? Like you it said, always arrives before it arrives. Mm-hmm. Things are finished before you acknowledge or realize they are. And I think that's yeah. everything in life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Gen- that genuinely terrifying moment of, mm-hmm. oh, oh. You know, the small moment of like, oh, I've dropped my phone on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a stone floor. And you go, oh, that's, I'm going to need to get that repaired just before it hits the ground and shatters. You know, uh, something ha- happens to time in that moment. That was a very pleasant thing to go about in life. When I wrote um, The Picture of Contented New Wealth, which is, I, I finished about 10 or 12 years ago, however long it was. But writing that book, it was my first... It was my first horror novel. And I had no idea how unpleasant it was going to be to write, because up until then, I'd really enjoyed writing. And, you know, the, the words had come from inside of me. To some extent, the novels had written themselves, and I'd steered them and decided where the plane should land. But all of a sudden, I'm writing something that makes me feel fucking awful and mm-hmm. heightens me. And that heightened awareness of evil that I had whilst writing that book meant that I'd have to stop working at about three. Mm. Otherwise, I had no hope of sleeping. I mean, it was—it really was too much. Wow. Too much. Um, and I, I became aware of evil in a vague and specific way everywhere, you know. Um, it, 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 it was the, the least pleasant literary experience of my life. So that awareness in itself is something. And I think, you know, Fanu and the other Victorian ghost story writers are right about this, that you you do have to be careful with unless you want to live either as a hermit or some sort of visionary seer. But if you want to mix it up in reality as we do and lead reasonably orderly and conventional lives, then too much of that awareness will undermine you without (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) You know. I wanted a reasonably orderly or conventional life, life before either. So this discussion has obviously teased that out of me. <laughs> 40 years, 46 I'll be in a week, and I only just realised I want to be a square. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be happier to be Mr. James than to be Sheridan Lathan. Y- yeah. <laughs> it's like I- a well-paid academic administrator having his Christmas parties. <laughs> the horror. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, that this is bringing us up to about an hour uh, now, which is where we usually wrap our interviews. Um, is there is there anything anybody would like to, to throw into our occult arena before we move to the outro? I will take that stunned silence as a no. <laughs> Let us let us wrap things up and let these uh, excellent excellent people plug various things and and let us know where we can give them our money. Well, sure, Claire. <laughs> I mean, as you can see, we're real shit hot business. Writer <laughs> <laughs> for twenty five years, and I'm a bloody publisher, and I, I <laughs> off pat. Um, so you repeat, repeat a book of the occult self-evidently out now on repeater books um if what we've said won't inspire you to buy it nothing i can say now will (laughs) out there um and the audible if you found listening to me not too terrible the audio of the picture of contented new wealth with me reading the whole thing is out now um on repeater audio um too so those those are my plugs. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> it's our pleasure. Uh, how about you, Claire? Right, cheers. Oh, yes. Well, I'm here for the Repeater Book of the Occult, but I also have a book that came out this fall from Repeater, Blue Light at the Screen, um, which is about horror. It's a nonfiction book, um, also about depression and religion and my own life as a haunted researcher (laughs) and you can you can go back to episode 104 
and listen to our interview with Claire about that phenomenal book. I think um, this is this is something I wanted to say to you uh, while I still had you on the line. But like, I think in that interview, I commented that like I would be going back to that book and just kind of reflecting on sections of it. And I totally have been doing that. Like that that book is just so good. Oh, thank you so much. I have been doing exactly the same thing, Ash. I didn't I didn't know that that was, <laughs> that that was both of us. Um, so yeah, that, that, that just signals that we are gentlemen of refined education and knowledge. <laughs> and word as well. <laughs> um, but thank you thank you so much to uh, Tarek thank you so much Claire uh, please do check out um, all we've we've done interviews with several uh, people who've had books come out with Repeater it has always been just such an enlightening and uh, incredible uh, opportunity to sit down with each and every one of them um, we'll link we'll link the uh, episode that we did with Claire previously in the show notes for this one but thank you very much to both of you for coming on today thank you so much thank you very much Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>